weep as I listen to those testimonies. To see a young life changed by the encounter with the Holy Spirit. The importance of the Holy Spirit is to realize you carry Him with you wherever you go. Now, God's in heaven, Jesus is there, but the Spirit of God is God's gift of His love for you to help you. He's a helper, He's a friend. And getting to know Him is just changing my life. Praise the Lord. Well, let's prepare to get into God's Word. Father, we thank You for all that You've done. We celebrate Your work in the lives of these young people. We thank You for this opportunity to come into, come into Your presence with praise and with worship. And Father, right now we want to continue to worship You by opening the Word of God together and allowing the precious Holy Spirit to speak into our lives. Your Word says that there are things our eyes have not seen, our ears have not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of man all that God has prepared for those who love Him. But Your Spirit's been given to us to reveal these things. Yes, He even searches the depths of Your heart and brings out the depths of Your heart for us and reveals them to us. So today we trust in the Holy Spirit to do that, to take the Word of God and the words of my mouth and my heart and to breathe the breath of God into our lives, that we would leave here today not with more information, but with a greater sense of the reality of what you've done for us and who you are and what you've called us to do. And for that we give you thanks in advance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I mentioned last week, we're in a series called Follow Me, and, and the, the reason why that is, I believe, is so important uh, is, first of all, it's something, that, a journey that the Lord started in my life over a year ago through some books that I just happened to pick up and, uh, and, and started reading again, some very challenging books, and we'll get into some of them as we go further down this road with this series, so you, you can share some of that with me. And it's a journey, and, and um, a journey we often want to know, well, where's it going, how are we going to get there? And we started by looking at what Jesus did with his disciples and how he called them to follow him, simply to follow him. And at the end of his earthly journey with them, before he was going to go to the cross and turn this calling and this following over to them to lead, uh, he talked to them about where he was going. And there's, there's an echo up here somewhere. So if you can try to remove the echo. I, I only need to hear myself once, not twice. Um, and so... Jesus explained to them he was going to prepare a place for them. And, 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 and Philip asked this question, well, Lord, we don't know how to get there because we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus' answer then was the same answer he had at the beginning. I am the way. You, need no, you don't need to know the destination. You don't need to know how to get there. You just need to follow me, and that's so simple and so profound that we, we, we miss it and we frustrate it even if we've ever seen it, and we start figuring this out, and, and life gets so complicated, and we even talked last week just briefly about some well-known leaders in the body of Christ over the last few weeks have renounced their, 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 their commitment to Christ, and how can that happen? Well, I don't know them personally, and I've read some of the things that they publish, but, but I know somewhere in line they stop following him, or maybe they never were. You can follow a church, you can follow an idea, you can follow your talents, you can follow people, but what keeps you on course is to go back to the very thing that we were to start with, was Jesus personally called each one of us to come follow me. And Satan does everything he can to get us off, off track. But then as we looked on, we found that it's a little... Jesus said to simply follow him. But then as he walked on with them, he began to explain to them that there were some things that they had to do in order to follow him. 
And so we've been starting, our, our key verse here is in Mar- Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, or verse uh, 24, yes, where Jesus basically says this. He says to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, so he's called us to follow him, and now he's telling them, if you're going to come after me, there's two things you've got to do first. Number one, you have to deny yourself, and then you have to take up your cross and follow me. So what we're looking at right now for several weeks is what did he mean by deny myself? Because as we've talked about, my first reaction, and I assume unless you're far more spiritual than I am, is our first reaction to deny myself is, no, I don't want to do that. In fact, everything built into us is just the opposite. Everything built into our training growing up, everything built into us as children growing up, everything built into us by our society is just the opposite, is to learn how to assert ourselves and defend ourselves and promote ourselves. And the the libraries and the bookstores and the online bookstores are filled with material about how you can better yourself, how you can promote yourself, how you can protect yourself, how you can do all kinds of things for yourself, and yet Jesus is saying just the opposite. If you want to follow me, you've got to do the opposite. You have to deny yourself. But we began to look at it, some basic things about this. First of all, the one that says this to us loves us far more than we'll ever love ourselves. And the Bible says he demonstrates his love for us in that while we're still sinners and enemies of God, he came and gave his life, shed his blood to redeem ungodly people, selfish, self-centered people such as you and me. And he did it to prepare a place for us and to redeem our lives so that we can stand before a holy God, holy and without blame, and live in an eternity with him. So the one that did that loves us far more than we love ourselves, and he's the one that says you've got to deny yourself. So there must be something about this denying ourselves that's not a loss, but it's a gain. And then we began to look at what the word deny tends to mean to us, and that's not what I believe Jesus is talking about. Now, just a caveat here. There may be other aspects of what he meant that we're not going to get into. This is what I believe God's been showing me for my life, and I believe when he does that, I'm supposed to share that with you. So we talked about what he does not mean. Firstly, does not mean destroy yourself. He's not mean deny that you exist. He's not mean deny that you breathe. He's not mean, you know, you can have no, you can't enjoy life. You can't, because God put us here to enjoy our lives, but with certain conditions and certain restrictions. And those are designed so that we don't get hurt in that process of enjoying our lives. So it doesn't mean to deny that you exist. It's not a self-denial in the sense of the aesthetics that the, the, that the Eastern religions teach, which by some, and there is, there's a, there's a, certain, there's a certain joy you can get out of, out of denying yourself and on your, by your own control, and, but there's a false pride in that. And the pride is, I'm more in control of myself than you are. So it's not those things. And then the last thing we looked at is it's not something you do. So it's not something I did that. It's a change in our mindset. Several places it says we're to have the mind of Christ. Philippians says put on the same mind, have the same mind that Christ Jesus had. And if you look at what he says afterwards, it was what we're going to talk about. It was a denial of himself. So it's a mindset. 
And we began to look at this mindset and what he means by this. But to do that, what the Lord took me back to is to go back and look again at the very foundation of what is it Christ did for us on that cross? What is it Christ did for you that you received when you came and received him? And we went back and looked at a whole bunch of scriptures about things that God did for us. And every one of these has one thing in common. What we have with God now because of Christ, we have because we are in Him. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away and all things become new. The reason we're a new creation is because of the one we're in. And see, I think we've had the image that when you come to Christ, He does this thing with you and then sends you out and He's there as a helpful resource. Come to church, learn about Him. But you're now to take what He's done for you and you're to build on that yourself. But that's not what the Word of God says. We looked at 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says, He who knew no sin became sin. That we might become the righteousness of God. God, not just cleaned up, His own righteousness. But the key words are the two words after Him, in Him. We looked in Ephesians chapter 2 and, and how God, had God proved His love and poured His love out for us. And all of that is through Christ, in Christ, or because of Christ. And so the picture we began to get is that what God has done for us is because He's brought us into Christ, and so we've now been joined to Christ. So we talk about, well, Jesus is with me. No. Yeah, He's with you like your feet and your hand and your head's with you. They're with you, but the reason they're with you is you're one with them. So you can't go anywhere without your head. My mother used to say, if my head wasn't attached to me, I'd forget it. But that shows you the exact thing. She knows, she has confidence her head's with her because it's attached to her. It's part of her. In the same way you've been made to, you've been made to be placed in Christ. And I did this little example up here of how I used to see God sitting on the throne, Jesus sitting next to him, and we're seated in heavenly places. I thought it said with Christ Jesus. So I thought that meant that, 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 um, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul sitting next to him, then Peter, John, I'm not sure what order it would be in, but somewhere way down there, way down there is this John. Until I realized what the Scripture was saying. No, no, I'm seated together with him because I'm in Christ Jesus. So we began to look, what does that mean? That means whatever Christ is, you are because you're in him. Whatever Christ can do, you can do, not because you're separately empowered, but because you're in Him, you are one with Him. And I use the example of, a, of, a, of the plane that we flew over to England and flew back on two different planes. But, but I, at one point, it shows on the, on the screen the, air, the atmosphere on the outside. And at one place, it was 73 degrees below zero. And I'm nice and warm and comfy under the blanket with the pillow they give you. Why? Because I'm in the airplane. And in the airplane, I have all the protection and all the benefits of what's in that plane because I'm in the plane. And, and that's the same image we have because you're in Christ. 
And so, and as I were looking, preparing this uh, and going over the beginning, let me explain something to you, because getting this concept of being one with him is a little strange with our mind, because I'm standing here, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. But the union, the oneness we have with him, is not a physical oneness, it's a oneness in the spirit. And that's where your, the real essence of who you are is your spirit man. Because that body that you're sitting in right now, you're going to leave here one way or the other. And the real you on the inside is either if Jesus comes back soon and you're going to go up and meet him in the clouds or when this body quits, you're going to leave that body and the real you is going to go one of two directions. And I pray today your real you is going to go up and not down. But it's not staying here. That's the point we're making. So just to kind of encourage you in that. So then we began to look at how Jesus taught about this. Because the, the ramifications of this are so important. And this is part of the mindset of what it means to, to, to be in Christ and to walk with Him. Because Jesus uses an example to teach His disciples a point. And it's in John 15. We're not going to read through it the way we did last week. Jesus said, my father is the, is the vine dresser. He's the farmer. And, and we, he used vine. We're going to use a tree because we can relate to that better. And he's saying, I am the tree. I am the trunk of the tree and you are the branches. Because the point he was making and the point I made last week is that because we are in Christ, I'm in Christ, Denny's in Christ, Dawn's in Christ, Anne's in Christ, those, all of you that belong to Christ, you're in Him, and because we're in Him together, we're in one another. And here's the point. This is so important, and it took me a while to get this, so I'll understand if it takes you a little while. That means that the only relationship that we have with each other is through Him. That has an immense significance so it's worth spending the time on. And I showed you the example of a tree, and Jesus uses a vine. A tree has branches on it, but the only living relationship they have with each other is because they're part of the same tree. So the branches on the top have no independent relationship with the branches on the bottom except through the trunk of the tree. And that began to transform my marriage because when I first read this and saw this, I struggled with it because the first thought, well, wait a minute, if my only relationship with my wife is through Christ, then I'm going to lose out. And then it dawned, how can I lose out? If, don't we talk about Christ being the center of our marriage? I hope you talk about that if you're married. Well, how can He be the center of us if we're, not, if we're independent of Him? He's the glue that holds us together. Not my emotional love for her, not her physical attraction. That's wonderful, but the real glue... Because I've got to tell you, if you've been married more than a little while, and we've been married 52 years, there are times... She's in a meeting right now. <laughs> there have been more than one occasion... There was one point in our marriage, and it was not her, it was me. I was pa- about to pack my bags and leave. It wasn't her, it was me. And I remember sitting in a car, I'm ready to go. 
But I realized that if I left her, I was going to disappoint my Lord. And I froze. And in my heart, I said, I can't do that. So whatever it takes to work this out, I'm going to do. So what held us together was our relationship with Him, not our relationship with each other. But more than that, my relationship with you and your relationship with me, your relationship with each other is only through Christ. We talked about last week the wonderful thing in this church is how the Spirit of God has blended together people from, many, from different races, many different nationalities, and what we have in common is not the way we look on the outside, not our age. I mean, you can get excited about a bunch of teenagers. Why? Because what they have in common with us is the same Spirit living in us, and there's only one Spirit, and He joins us together. And down the road, we'll talk about how this applies in our life. Secondly, the branches of that tree cannot produce fruit on their own. Jesus said, apart from me, separated from me, you can do nothing. nothing. Not a good job, not an inferior job, nothing. A branch gets the life to produce the fruit from the trunk of the tree and the root system. On the other hand, the trunk can't produce anything without the branch. And that happens because the branch and the trunk are one. They have the same identity. I've never yet looked at, a, at, at, at the branch of an oak tree and says, that's branch number one, that's branch number two. That, I say, that's an oak tree. So the, the, the branch has the same identity as the trunk of the tree and as the fruit or the leaves that come off of it. In the same way, you and I have the same identity as the trunk that we're joined to. We are called Christians or of Christ or those who belong to Christ. So the name by which we're called is His because we have His identity. The world knows that. That's why they don't like us. Jesus said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. Because why? Because we're one. The church is the only one that doesn't understand that. And we squabble among each other. We're jealous among each other. Why? Because it's Satan's weapon to try to see us as separate from one another. And so what we began to do is we began to look way back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. We see this was, this was his weapon from the very beginning was to try to get Adam and Eve to see themselves as separate from God. Because until that point, they saw themselves as one with God. There was nothing separating them from God. They were so caught up in who God was, and there was no barrier between them. They didn't realize they had no clothes on. You've got to be pretty occupied with something else to not realize you're naked. And then there's chapter 3. We saw what happened in chapter 3. We saw that Satan comes and gets Eve to question, has God said to you, you shall not eat of that tree? And I'm not going to go into the details. I've done series on this. The mistake she makes is answering him. The moment she answers him, she gives him a right to speak to her. You don't have to answer Satan. 
you don't owe him an obligation to explain things to you, to him. And then the moment she does that, he then directly contradicts God's word and says, he's lied to you, basically what he says. And then he goes further and says, he's trying to keep something from you because God knows something that he didn't tell you. Well, there's a shock, isn't it? God knows something He didn't tell you, and He's withholding something from you. So the subtle implication is, because God's withholding something from you, you have a right to get it for yourself. That's what's underlying this conversation. And then it says, she saw the fruit. She saw that it was good to eat. And then she saw that it was good, it would make one wise. So she's choosing, listen carefully, she's choosing to go after her own independent wisdom apart from God. Remember what I said, Satan's device is to see us separate from him. And the moment they act, they take an act separate from what God told them, they fall. And Jesus comes to restore that. We talked about that last week. But what we're going to look at is now we're going to look at Jesus as an example of this same battle and how He won it. What Satan came after with Jesus is the same thing He came after with Adam and Eve in the garden. So let's go to Matthew. Uh, what this, Jesus is an example. First of all, I'm not going to have time. I don't want to go through all the scriptures. But Jesus knew that he was one with the Father. And he only saw himself in terms of that unity, that union with the Father. Jesus said in John 5, 19, The Son, myself, I can do nothing of myself, only what I see my Father do. Doesn't that sound like the branch can do nothing apart from the vine? John 5, 30, he said, I don't seek my own will, but I only seek the will. In other words, I have no independent will of my own. Now, a psychologist gets a hold of that and they think, this guy had trouble. He had, no, he had no sense of his own dignity, his own... You know, he had no will of his own. But Jesus was the freest man that ever walked on the earth because the freedom was he was freed from the dominion of his own will. John twelve forty nine. He only spoke what he heard his father speak. Boy, a psychologist could have fun with that. Let's look at Matthew 19. I wanted to show this one to you. Matthew 19, verse 16 and 17. Now, there's a rich one, Euler's come to him. I think that's the one. And he comes and he says, Now behold, one came to him and said, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Look at verse 17. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? Wait, wait a minute, this is Jesus. <laughs> this is Jesus who never sinned. And his response was, why are you calling me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you went in or left, keep the commands. So Jesus is stopping him. So wait a minute, blah, 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 blah. The goodness you see in me doesn't emanate from me. It's a reflection of the one that I'm one with. So Jesus understood this. This is Jesus we're talking about. Now, Satan tries to get Jesus to do the same thing he was successful in getting the couple in the garden. Let's go to Luke chapter 4. 
quiet in here. That's a good sign. Verse 1. Then Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit. He's just been baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. And when he comes up, the Spirit... Of he- the Spirit of God descends on him and like a dove, not a dove, but he descends in the way a dove would come down, and he's filled with the Spirit. And the first thing the Spirit does is he, the, Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterwards, when he had ended, he was hungry. And there's a lot of things we can look at in here. But I want to show you that Satan tried the same thing with Jesus that he tried and was successful with, with the, women, with, the, with the man and woman in the garden, and that is to separate themselves from God, see themselves separate from God. Look at his trick. Same thing he did with the garden. Verse 3, And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now obviously, Jesus is hungry and the temptation here is to take the power that he has of the Spirit and use it to convert the stones into bread. But there's something far more significant going on here. It starts with the devil saying, if you are the Son of God. He's not trying... I don't believe he's trying to... I don't believe he thinks he can convince Jesus that he's not the Son of God. I don't think that's what he was trying to do. All he was trying to do was to challenge Jesus to prove who he was. Because the moment you choose to prove who you are, you are beginning to see yourself separate from the one who's made you who you are. I'm going to say that again because I've got to, you've got to, I want you to get this point. Satan wasn't trying to talk him out of being the son of God. Satan simply wanted to get an opening. And if he can get Jesus to defend himself, because first of all, if Jesus defends himself to Satan, he's acknowledging that Satan has some position and authority or some reason why Jesus should defend himself to Satan. The best thing you can do with Satan is ignore him. He hates it. He wants attention. Now, there are times you need to take authority over him, but he loves attention. But the moment Jesus, if Jesus had, def- if Jesus had defended himself, he's now seeing himself, as, because as long as he sees himself as one with God, why does he need to defend himself? He's one with God. He doesn't need to do anything to justify himself or explain himself. He's one with God. But if he defended himself, if he tried to prove who he was or justify who he was, he's now beginning to see himself separate from God and I've got to prove that I belong to him. You have to prove you belong to him if you're in him. And notice how he responds Jesus does not fall for the temptation. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said, It is written. Notice each one of these temptations, He answers with the Word of God. Nothing more and nothing less. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Jesus is basically saying here, I live only by what God has said, not what I say, not what you say, or anyone else says. 
Jesus is reasserting who God said he was. Because God said it, I don't need to defend it. Everybody okay? Follow me? Verse 5, so the devil's going to try again. The devil taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And a moment of time, and the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Now stop for a second. In order for this to be a temptation, Satan had to actually have that authority to give him. And notice he says, It's been delivered to me. Who delivered it to him? Adam did. Otherwise, Jesus, it wouldn't even be a temptation. So, now understand this. Jesus' commission ultimately, was to come and buy back with his own life the authority and the position that God had originally given Adam that Adam turned over to Satan. Satan knows that's why he's come, and Satan's trying to shortcut it. God has already ordained, ordained the way this has to happen, which as from the time beginning, because it's in, it's in the Old Testament, it's in Isaiah 53, it's in all kinds of prophecies, that the Son of God has to come and has to suffer and has to die to pay for our sins. And Satan said, look, you don't have to do that. I got a shortcut. Look, nobody's looking. All right? This is just you and me. All you got to do is just... Touch your knee to the ground. Just admit who I am, and I give it to you. But if he'd done that, then the authority that Jesus would have had on the earth would have still come through Satan. But here's the point. If he had given in to that, he would have come and to take his responsibility, his commission, instead of doing it the way God had told him to do it, he would now separate himself and use his own independent judgment to accomplish the same task. And we do that sometimes. God's Word says something, we'll figure, okay, I know the spirit of what God's saying here, but let me figure out another way to do it. Let me figure out another way to do what God said to do. Can you see how that's operating independent? And this is the thing Satan very subtly tries to do. So how does Jesus answer this? The same way he answered the first one. It is written. And Jesus said, um, Get behind me, Satan, verse 8, For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. So Jesus goes back He says nothing here, listen carefully, He says nothing here and does nothing here that varies at all from what God has said. Because He's one with Him. He's one with Him. This is why it's so important that that we speak the word over situations and not our own opinion and our own view. One of the Greek words for, for praise and worship is homologia, which is a Greek word that means say the same thing. So when you speak God's word over a situation, you're not just agreeing with Him, you're asserting your union with Him. That you're one with Him. Are you getting this? All right, okay, good, okay. I'm going to bring it down and apply it to us in a few minutes. Okay, let's go on, because he tried a third time. Then he brought, verse 9, he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God. There it is again. 
if you are the Son of God. He wants to debate. He wants Jesus to try to prove who he is because the moment he does, he separates himself in his mind to prove that he's what he already is. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. Now he's going to use the word. It is written, He shall give His change, angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Amen. So Jesus recognizes what the temptation is. Now as I was meditating on this the other day, it occurred to me, what's the essence of a temptation? You ever have a piece of birthday cake left over in the refrigerator and it's late at night and it begins to talk to you? The door's closed. The light in the refrigerator's off. But that piece of cake or whatever it may be for you talks to you all the way in the other room. It's trying to draw you Temptation is designed to draw you away from one thing and towards something else. Each of these three temptations were designed to draw Jesus away from his unity with the Father and begin to handle situations and think and talk as an individual separate from the Father. And here's the danger. You can be totally committed to him but you see yourself as separate. And this is where many Christians are. They're committed to Christ. They love Christ. They worship Christ. They read His Word, but they see ourselves as separate from Him. So when it comes to worship, how can I really enter into worship? Because I know myself. How can I have confidence when I pray that God's... I have confidence that He'd hear Jesus, but why would I have confidence He'd hear me? Because I know I'm committed to Christ. I love Christ. I love the Father. But why would He listen to me? Because... But here's... But if I'm in Christ, I'm one with Him. He sees me the same way He sees Christ. Why? Because I'm one with Christ. I'm in Christ. Jesus successfully maintained his position in the... By the way, I've meant to make... These notes are online. I would encourage you to download them and bring them with you and, and go... Because sometimes I go through scriptures quickly. You'll find there's a typo. I'll get to it in a minute. But Jesus successfully maintained his position in the Father through the authority of what God's Word said about him and the situation. It was knowing that he was not... Now, we're going to look at something even more significant now. So this is the beginning of his ministry. Now we're going to look at his suffering. It was knowing that he was not separate from the Father, that he was one with the Father, that allowed him to endure the suffering he went through for us without defending or protecting himself. With all the things that were done to him, the humiliation, the Roman soldiers were masters at humiliating you. They stripped him of his garments. They put a purple robe on it. They wore, wove a crown of thorns and they mocked him as a king. The very one who created them ultimately. The very one who gave them breath by which they were mocking him. The very one who, 
through whom this world was created. And the thorns ultimately were created by Him. The cross ultimately was created by Him. And yet He did not defend Himself. He had every right to assert who He was. Don't you know who I am? Not only that, don't you know why I'm doing this? I'm doing this to save your soul. But He kept His mouth shut through all the physical torture and beating beyond, so that his face was beyond recognition as a man. The only time he really opens his mouth when Pilate has him before him is not to defend himself, but to defend his father. When Pilate says, don't you know I have the power to put you to death or keep you alive? And Jesus says, you have no power or authority that my father hasn't given you. How, how could he do this? The Apostle Paul, with all of his commitment to the Lord and all of the things he'd gone through and his amazing faith, faith got to a point when, when, when he, he is challenged and he speaks back to the high priest and he's slapped and corrected for that. Even Paul ultimately could not restrain himself. But Jesus had complete restraint in the middle of this horrible thing he went through. Why? Well, we have the answer in the Word. First Peter chapter 2. well-known verses on healing, but we're going to look a little bit before that. We're going to go to verse 13. Therefore, submit yourself to... He's talking about us now. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether a king... Uh, let's go down to... Uh, let's go to verse 18, excuse me. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear or reverence, not only to the good and the gentle, that's easy to do, but to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience sake towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongly. For what credit is it if you're beaten for your faults and you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, patiently, this is commendable before God. Now that's against everything that's built into us. It's one thing if we get in trouble and we, you know, we're, we're punished for something we did wrong, somewhere down inside we know we deserved it. But what if people come against you if you're punished, if you're mistreated, and you didn't do anything wrong, in fact you did something right? That just offends our sense of justice especially our sense of justice for myself. Wait a minute, I didn't, anything, I didn't do anything wrong here. But the Spirit of God is telling us that pleases God. You'll see why in a minute. Verse 21, here's what you're called to do. For to this end you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in His steps. It's not sickness and disease, because Jesus was never sick. The suffering he's talking about is being persecuted for something you did right, not wrong. That we should follow us at verse 22. He's talking about him who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. He didn't defend himself. He didn't strike back. He didn't assert who he was. He told his 
He told the, the disciples when the guards came to arrest him, he says, if I wanted to, I could call out and a thousand legions of, de- of angels would come down and rescue me. But that's not what I'm called to do. <laughs> Verse 23, Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in turn? When he suffered, did not threaten? How did he do that? But he committed, he committed himself to one who judges rightly who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. Jesus bore all of that to pay the price for something he never began to deserve, to bear the suffering that we completely deserved so that He might give us the righteousness that He earned and give it to us who earn no righteousness at all. How could He do that? Now remember, He's not only God, He's a man. One of the purposes for Him going through those three temptations was Satan, because remember, the Holy Spirit led Him into the temptations. I thought Jesus' prayer was, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. But Satan, the Holy Spirit was bringing him there because Jesus had to test out his flesh. Because God had never worn flesh before. And Satan's temptation at us is through our flesh and through our unrenewed minds. So Jesus had to go through the testing to establish that he walked in that dominion over his flesh. And how did he do that? He did it because he never walked away from seeing himself as one with the Father. He could do this because he committed himself to the one who judges rightly. And committed isn't at a distance. He saw himself as one with God the Father. I've been through some trials and tests as a pastor. I've been through some trials and tests as a, as personally in my life. And when I know that I am completely in the middle of God's will, when I see the attack or when I see Satan's work trying to come at this church or trying to come at me, and I see myself in Christ, I walk in perfect peace. It's as if he's walking right in front of me and whatever comes at me has to get through him first of all. Didn't Paul say, I can do all things because I'm a Christian? No, he didn't. Ah, you should know better. He said, I can do all things through Christ. In other words, I can do all things because I'm one with Christ. Well, that's Jesus. Let's go to Acts chapter 5. Jesus has now gone to the cross, been raised from the dead, and He's turned this over to His disciples. And they've spread the word by the power of the Holy Spirit. And now we're going to look at them as they get tested. What's happened now is Peter's preached this amazing sermon, and miracles, a miracle has happened. And they get arrested. And they get threatened. And then they're released. And they've been threatened that you can do anything you want, just don't preach in that name. 
and they go right back out and start preaching in that name, knowing they were going to get arrested again. How can you do that? And so they get arrested again. And they're brought before the council. And they don't know what to do with them. The problem they got is the word of this miracle is spreading and they're afraid that if they, if they punish these guys that they're going to have a riot on their hands. So this wise man, this rabbi Gamaliel stands up and basically says, look, just, just, just remember, we've had these things happen before and they, people stir up this thing and stir up that thing. If we just wait, it'll burn itself out. Unless, of course, it is of God and then you don't want to be found opposing God. So with that background, this is, what, this is what they decided to do. We'll pick up in verse, verse 40. So they all agreed with him. And when they called for the apostles, they didn't just let them go, and beaten them. And they, then they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing, not that they were free, but rejoicing that they've been counted worthy to suffer for His namesake. And daily in the temple, and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Don't these guys get it? Every time you do that, you're going to get beaten. Something has to be, a screw has to be loose up there somewhere. That if you're beaten, I mean, it's it's understandable if they rejoice because they let them go. They could have their wounds dressed and then let's find somewhere so they don't know what we're doing but we can still preach Christ. No, they rejoiced that they had been beaten not because they were masochistic, not because they enjoyed being but because it told them something. What did it tell them? That they were worth... It, it was proof of their identity with Christ. Earlier on it said that the authorities saw... These were young, these were uneducated men. It said they were Galileans. That's hard for us to understand. But Rome, not Rome, Jerusalem at that time as it still was a very cosmopolitan city. Many nations were represented there. Many races were represented there. Highly educated people were there. And, and the Galileans were country bumpkins. So to call them Galileans was basically to say they're a bunch of hicks. And it says, but they noticed these were uneducated hicks, but there was something special about them because they could tell they'd been with Jesus. What they didn't understand is they weren't just with Him. They were in Him. They were in Him. One last thing we're going to look at. Let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 5. This is in the notes. It's 4, but it's 5. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is what we call the Sermon on the Mount, but it's really spoken to His disciples. And he, he's, it's a series of lessons where He says, this is what you've heard before, this is what the, the law required, but what you're going to find out is the righteousness of God requires something greater. Greater. And we're going to just pick one of these out because it's the one that we can relate to perhaps more than anything else. Verse 43. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless, it gets worse, bless those that curse you, do good to those who hate you, and now it really gets good, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. 
Now, it's one thing to love your enemies who never do anything to you. They're just your enemies. All right, I can love them. It's another thing to bless those that have said things bad to you or about you. It's even harder to do good to those who hate. We don't want to do good to them. We think we're good people. We just ignore them and let them hate us. But he's saying, do something active. Do something good for them. But then you get into those who spitefully use you. That's somebody that purposely decided, I'm going to find a way to hurt you or your family. And he's saying, pray for them. Oh, I'll pray for them, all right. Well, I'll pray for them, all right. And I've had people that have done things against me, especially in ministry. And I get on my face and I'll just pray for them because when I hear their name, if something goes on the inside, I know I've got to deal with it. And so I'll pray for them until the goes away and it's just nice and smooth. How can you do that? Verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you just love those who love you, what reward have you? How's that any different from the world? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you just greet your brothers only, what do you do more than the others? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That verse got me saved. Because I read that verse and says, I got a problem. I may be a good person, but I'm not perfect like my Father, the Father in heaven is. But how could you be perfect like your Father in heaven? Because if you're in Christ who's perfect, then you've been made perfect or complete in Him. So what Jesus is saying is, the reason you're to, you're to act like your Father in heaven, because you're one with Him, because you're one with Christ. The only way you can do this is in Christ. I've had people, I've looked at it and I've said, mm, God, there's no way you can love them. There's no way you can love them. And then I realize I'm not any better in His eyes on my own than they are. And what I want us to get as we go further in this series, I want you to get a picture in your heart by the Holy Spirit of how broad the love of Christ is. How broad the love of Christ is. See, we react to situations based on seeing ourselves as an individual. It's what, but you don't know what they did to me. That's Satan's effort to get you to see yourself as separate from Christ. There have some, been some people I couldn't forgive separate from Christ, but in Christ I can forgive them because His love has been shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Spirit. Amen. So to deny yourself what I believe Jesus means there, and there may be other applications to it, what I believe He means is doesn't, not to deny you exist, not to deny that you see, and you're not, but to deny yourself the right to act, to think, respond in any way as if you're separate 
from Him. And the way that begins to come up in our life is when somebody does something against you. It'll come up in other revenues. But the clearest way is when somebody does something to offend you. To offend who? Offend you. And if they've offended me, that means I'm seeing myself as separate from Christ because they're not going to offend Him. It also means that I begin to see how people relate to Christ as more important than how they relate to me. So as we go down this journey together, we're going to go through applications of this so that you can see how to begin to apply this in your life. So to end, what we mean by to deny yourself means to deny yourself the right to see yourself, to think about yourself, to respond to people and situations as if I'm independent from Christ. I don't have that right. I'm not independent from Him because I'm in Him, but I can see myself and act as if I'm independent from Him. And Satan can't separate you from Christ, but he can tempt you and deceive you into seeing yourself separate from Christ. And on our own, we can't make it. And this is why I believe we're going to see many people fall away. The Bible says in the last days, many are going to fall away. Why? Because they have not learned how to follow Him and walk in Him, and they're trying to do it on their own, and you can't do that. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much. Lord, I recognize that when I first saw these things, they were difficult to truly grasp. And I pray again today, as I have before, that the precious Holy Spirit will do what only He can do. He'll take the word that we've read and the words that have been spoken and begin to work in each one of our hearts and to see that application in our lives. Father, we thank You so much for what You've done for us in Christ. And I believe it will take an eternity for us to truly grasp the enormity of what You've done. But may we start today to grow in our understanding. So I pray today, Father, for all of us, for myself included, what the Apostle Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, that You would give to us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, that the eyes of our understanding would be opened, that we would truly see the hope of our call, Your calling for our life is in Christ and that you would strengthen us by your Spirit in our inner man, that Christ may be able to dwell, live his life in us and through us by faith. Being rooted and grounded in love, we might come to know together and together with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, God that's in Christ Jesus. Now unto Him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think according to that power that's at work in us. For it is God who is at work in us both to will and to do His good pleasure. And For that we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Before we close the service, we all...